Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome everyone to the Educational Renaissance Podcast. My name is Colby Atchison. I'm here today with Jason Barney and Patrick Egan. And today we're gonna be talking about the history of narration and why this history matters. Uh, There's a lot of educators today who are starting to use narration more and more in their classrooms. And today we wanna take a deeper dive into where this practice comes from, Uh, especially in the writings of Charlotte Mason, we've read about narration, but today we'll take a deeper dive into that history. Uh, Jason has been doing a series on the history of narration. And so today we're definitely going to Uh, lean on him for his expertise and hear um, what he has to say. So, uh, Jason, maybe we could just start with, uh, very briefly, what is narration? And while you're talking about narration, could you also share just a little bit about um, where you've been teaching on narration the last year or so? I think that'd be helpful for our listeners. Definitely. Thanks, Colby. Um, Narration is a long-form telling or response to content that's imitative in nature. So in narration, as a teaching practice, students are imitating rich content of some kind through expressing it in their own words or drawing from an author's language in as full detail as possible. And that's different from other forms of what might be retrieval practice or engagement with material. Often you'll have uh, discrete questions or questions about particular facts or ideas or implications of something that students have just learned. And that can be a helpful form of learning. It's a little bit more analytical. One of the benefits of narration is that it is synthetic. So it engages the storied imagination of a student. What we from a particular tradition of brain science might call the right brain as opposed to the left brain analytical nature. We know of course now that both hemispheres of the brain are involved, but but I think we all get the idea that there's a, a way of memorizing up or analyzing particular details or content with a high focus on the reasoning faculty. But then there's also this kind of deeper storied, more emotional part of the brain or way of engaging with content. So so that's how I define narration as this long form retelling of content that a student has been exposed to um, in whatever form that takes. So there are a lot of different ways that narration can occur. Yeah, that's that's really helpful, and I appreciate the the background in neuroscience on on how narration works and everything. Um, and this past year, you've actually presented on this topic at multiple conferences, uh, ACCS, SCL. You've also gone to a different, a few different Charlotte Mason places. Uh, tell us about that, those experiences. Well, those have been great opportunities to continue to hone my thinking about narration. This kind of all started on educational renaissance when I wrote an ebook 
on how to implement narration in the classical classroom. And that developed out over time to become the book, A Classical Guide to Narration with the Searcy Institute, which was published this last uh, November, 2020. And um, it's been just a whirlwind and really exciting. More recently, uh, this last December, I had the opportunity to film a course with Classical U, um, put on by Classical Academic Press over in Pennsylvania with, um, you know, Jesse does a great job leading a whole bunch of things there, Chris Perrin, um, the videographer Richard Presner. We just had a great time. I had three days and I filmed two courses with them, one on a classical guide to narration and then another on Charlotte Mason generally. Um, and I knew that I needed to focus my attention on the topic of Charlotte Mason and narration ahead of that. And I had been getting started with a series on Bloom's Taxonomy and replacing Bloom's Taxonomy with Aristotle's Five Intellectual Virtues, which I look forward to diving back into, but I just had to put that on hold and focus on narration and Charlotte Mason and getting my head in gear ready for that opportunity to film all those different lectures. And so that's kind of the genesis of the series I did recently on the history of narration and why it matters for classical educators and Charlotte Mason educators. And really why I wanted to dive into this topic of the history of narration is because there had been some loose ends for me in writing a classical guide to narration. I had looked at a lot of the details, tried to do some of the neuroscience work, like you said, and, and tried to really give a very practical and helpful set of steps and details for how you would actually use narration in a classical classroom today in the 21st century. But along the way, I alluded to some of what I had been discovering in terms of the history of narration, how narration actually didn't start with Charlotte Mason. It wasn't her invention. And that had been a surprise to me uh, many years ago. I had first discovered narration being referenced by John Locke, and that threw me for a loop. And then I, I went further and found narration referenced in Quintilian, one of the most famous rhetorical teachers of the ancient world. From there, I found a couple other things through the help of Karen Glass and her book, Know and Tell. What I did in this series is try and lay out step-by-step what was narration at each stage? How was it used differently? And then given that whole history of, of how narration was developed and changed at different eras as a teaching practice, what then was Charlotte Mason doing with it? How was she innovated, innovative? How did she take narration as it was and then apply it in her particular time and context and based on her own philosophy and what she thought about how the mind worked. I, of course, found this very interesting because I, I think almost getting the past points us forward into how we might use narration today and how we might even answer some dilemmas between exactly following Charlotte Mason in this one era area of narration or what other creative ways we could use narration that would be effective for different pedagogical goals.
That's really helpful. Um, I'll be honest, Jason, when I heard you were going to start this project, I was a little bit skeptical. You know, is, is narration really out there? You know, how far back does it really go? And uh, you've convinced me. So I'd love for you to convince some listeners here. Could you start off with just going back to some of the classical roots of narration? You know, you mentioned Quintilian. Um, what did Quintilian have to say about narration? What, what practical ways did he use it? And then are there any other, um, what other classical thinkers uh, endorsed narration? Oh, thanks, Colby. I, I don't blame you for being skeptical. I have tried to have a pretty rigorous approach to something actually qualifying as narration and not just willy-nilly pulling old sources that had any different pedagogy. And so I've really isolated probably around five texts where we have different educators referencing something that if you read the text sounds exactly like narration and they're endorsing this particular um, approach to learning as a practice that would be done again and again. I, you know, I've talked with Chris Perrin, for instance, about medieval pedagogy and some of the ideas behind Lectio Divina. And he's mentioned how some of that sort of approach to close reading of text sounds very like or does something that's like narration. And I would affirm that that's in the same ballpark of close reading of text. But I've been trying, I've tried to be rigorous in going for what is actually narration and and not just, uh, you know, loosely taking in any sort of approach to text where you're reading it closely. Um, I think there are a lot of legitimate responses to texts that are not narration. So yeah, like you said, I, I think the beginning of narration occurs with Aelius Theon, who is a rhetorical teacher in Alexandria and wrote the first progymnosmata textbook or preliminary exercises textbook that we actually have record of. And I haven't been able to read it myself. It's actually pretty hard to access, but George Kennedy, the professor of rhetoric um, from the University of North Carolina in this last generation, um, brilliant scholar on rhetoric in his book on the classical um, rhetoric and its Christian and secular tradition. He references Aelius Theon and talks about how his, his technique, his teaching method in a way, use this practice of him reading out a text and having his young rhetoric students practice writing out a narration in full from just what they had heard. So that's my first kind of touch point that I found of narration being used. Then um, not that long later, just about a generation later, we have Quintilian, first century CE in I think it's the coast of Spain where he's primarily operating as a rhetorical teacher in the Roman world. He gives recommendations for students narrating, even kind of from a younger age, narrating stories, particularly um, telling aloud the fables of Aesop, and then progressing from that to writing out narrations and different sorts of, I guess we call it exercises, composition exercises, where they are changing the text in some way. And so that kind of moves off the territory of narration into more of a 
transition to students creating their own original content, certainly from something they've engaged with imitating it, but then they're switching, they're changing it in some way. They're perhaps turning poetry into prose or vice versa. And so that's kind of the, the next step. And that I, I, those two in particular, I think, represent the use of narration in the classical era well as, as a preliminary exercise, a, a training technique for young orators. That's some of the beginnings of narration as we see it. I want to open it up to you guys to talk and interact with those thoughts there in the classical era or classical roots of narration. What I find interesting about this history of narration is to see ways in which there's a continuity in what Charlotte Mason is proposing uh, as a basically a discovery of narration, something that may have been lost or misunderstood that goes way back into the recesses of classical history, that this had always been a part of classical pedagogy. And yet it also seems like there's some elements of discontinuity where the ways in which people understood narration at different points uh, had different emphases or goals in mind. And I'd be interested to to see in, in broad strokes, where are you seeing some of those discontinuities? Yeah, that's a great question. And if we just contrast her with the classical era in particular, um, Charlotte Mason has a different main goal for narration than these rhetorical teachers did in the classical era. Charlotte Mason is focused on the knowledge of content. Students narrate in order to know. And you see that all over the place in Charlotte Mason. Um, you can even see it in Karen Glass's title, Know and Tell, which I think well represents Mason's emphasis that you can know if a child knows something by what he or she can tell. That becomes the focus. And I don't think that was the focus for our rhetorical teachers, Ilias Theon and Quintilian, and whoever else was using their methods of narration that they articulated in those two works that we have access to, their focus would be upon the student's development of style, their ability to speak fluently and at length to tell a story well. So you have this rhetorical training focus in the classical era. And then um, Charlotte Mason is proposing this kind of, you could call it scientific focus or a focus on knowledge, this instructional focus, a sort of philosophical focus on students gaining and storing away knowledge in their mind. It's not that the rhetorical teachers didn't want students taking in details from what they were learning along the way. They, they just didn't emphasize that. That would happen as a matter of course. And it's exactly flipped for Charlotte Mason. Charlotte Mason's focus is upon students getting the content and storing the rich content away in their minds and the style and everything else like that in terms of the composition exercises and development of students fluency. That'll take care of itself in Charlotte Mason's mind. And she says that explicitly at a number of points. She is not pushing for a strong emphasis on correcting students. Whereas um, in that tradition, you actually have John Locke clearly from 
the kind of early Enlightenment um, era in England, looking back at Quintilian and expressing a, a type of narration that was very much focused on style and the development of rhetorical ability. Locke is, is saying, no, we got to make sure that the students fix their way of telling a story, because that's the problem that, in a way, Locke is trying to solve. He looks at the, what we would call, I suppose, classical teaching of the day by tutors who would train students to memorize all the different rhetorical um, you know, devices and rhetorical structures of speeches. They would memorize all this logic terminology, but not know how to think well or to reason well or to speak fluently or even tell a good story. They memorized up all this Latin terminology, but couldn't even engage well in the duties that they actually had as English gentlemen in Locke's mindset. And so he's all focused on style, just like in a way Quintilian and Aelius Theon seem to be. Uh, Charlotte Mason is not, is not worried about that in the same way. How does that fit with what Karen Glass is, is writing about in No and Tell about using narration as a way of teaching composition? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, one of the things I come to is that, well, so part of, part of it is the question of what is teaching composition? <laughs> you know, Charlotte Mason did advocate for narration as a method of teaching students to write on their own. In essence, they would develop style implicitly through writing about content that they got from authors with good style. So if they're reading high quality literature, they're going to kind of implicitly imitate it. Charlotte Mason definitely endorsed that. I do think that in some ways, um, at least depending on what you're reading from Charlotte Mason, how Karen Glass lays out some of what we might do to help correct and develop students in their composition, their ability to write, you know, essays, for instance, I think she does move a little bit towards the rhetoric training side of things that Charlotte Mason might not have explicitly endorsed herself or had occur in her PNEU schools. So I, I do think there's a general tendency among classical educators that are, we're going to want more of that rhetorical training. Charlotte Mason herself is very worried about a stilted style developing in students. It's possible that she's interacting with particular types of ways of teaching composition or rhetoric in her day that were very formulaic. I've even heard this criticism from some parents, educators today of certain types of composition curricula or rhetoric curricula we have out there where they say, this is a problem. We are creating students with a very stilted style where they just follow the formula and think that in that way they've written a good essay. And so I think we could probably all get on board with sympathizing with Charlotte Mason a little bit here with that problem. It, it is a problem of writing and composition of how do you give students an original style that's at the same time orderly and structured enough that it's not haphazard and all over the place. So I know, Patrick, you've written on composition and writing in the past. I wonder if you had any thoughts on a provisional solution for us on that, that kind of navigates the 
the way between, you know, rhetoric on the one side and the classical rhetorical tradition and Charlotte Mason's concerns here on the other side. The training of students in, say, the canons of rhetoric seem to be really essential to give them the structures that they need to hone their thoughts and, and come up with the ideas. So we've got uh, invention, we, we have ways of exploring ideas through defining things and differentiating. We definitely want to give them those structures. Uh, what does a five-sentence paragraph, five-paragraph essay look like? And, and so we absolutely need to teach those things. But that's also where we get very stunted kinds of uh, progressions. Like I, I put together my sentence properly. I have a topic sentence. I use the right transition words. I didn't use the passive voice. And you feel like I've written, you, you feel like you've written well when you've ch ticked all of those boxes. There does seem to be the need, though, to teach students also how to connect with an authentic, real audience, not just the teacher. <laughs> and it's very frequent that uh, with my upper level students, they will ask me all of the requirements. You know, what are you looking for, Dr. Egan? And I said, well, I, you know, I want you to give complete expression to what, what I've assigned to you. Don't, don't give me any remainder. Give, give me everything but also do it in an efficient way. And so there are these ideas that are a little more dynamic, like completeness of thought, clarity, but also efficiency to address an audience, but also to find your voice. You know, are there creative ways that you now know the rules, but could potentially break a rule or two in a knowing way, not because you are blindly just writing from the top of your head, but because you're actually following a particular style choice that may be informed from authors that you've read. Uh, maybe you choose a Dickensian style or have a certain kind of narrative that's informing your argumentative essay. Part of what this points towards is a really dynamic uh, understanding of what we're doing when we're teaching composition is providing structure, but also allowing students to find those avenues of creative exploration that aren't just, you know, you're finding the spark of the muse or something like that, but that it's actually well informed from this deep reading that you've done from these uh, great voices. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate that, Patrick. And I found in my own experience of teaching composition that uh, you really do need both. You need to provide the structure and the rules and the just those conventional ways of writing, but you also need to provide that that free space for the kids to play a little bit, for them to uh, exercise their creativity. And I think the imitation through narration of of a great essay is a really strategic way of letting them play, so to speak, as they tell back what they remember and seek to imitate, but at the same time aren't confined to the rigid rules of topic sentence must be the first sentence in your essay, and it must be five paragraphs, no more, no less. I'll never forget my first year in college, my first essay I wrote, I wrote a five paragraph essay because that is what I had been trained to do in high school. And my professor just 
uh, railed on me for that. You know, <laughs> don't ever send me a five paragraph essay again. My growth as a writer had been stunted by overcompliance to a particular structure. One of the things that I find interesting about this whole conversation, too, is the extent to which the conventions and style that we're looking for in our students are culturally conditioned. They're different. And while Charlotte Mason seems not to have endorsed a particular type of training and style, we look back and we can see in her examinations many students were writing in poetry as responses. And to many of our schools today who, you know, train them in five, five paragraph essay structure, we look at that and, and wonder, how could it be that students would learn to write in verse and would write their knowledge-based examination questions uh, or answers in long stretches of poetry. How did that happen? And we have to kind of think, well, maybe while Charlotte Mason was against a particular type of stilted style, there was some legitimate composition training going on, uh, not least of which would have been training them in how to write poems in particular verse structures. And I think that's virtually an undeniable fact. And I think it colors how we view this. And given her love for the romantic poets like Coleridge and Wordsworth and many others that she's drawing even her philosophy of education from, perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised. Instead, we should see her as endorsing a particular type of goal in terms of students' composition writing rhetoric ability. That, that had this poetic insight to it and had this, you know, plain knowledge style that, um, that we would expect. So I think either way, you know, we're going for the same goals, but I think that's an important consideration that what's, what good style looks like to a certain extent depends on the conventions of people today. Are your college professors going to want these students to be writing five paragraph essays and Colby's answer at least is no. And that may differ from professor to professor. So I think ultimately what we do want is we want our students to have some clear structure, logical flow, ability to argue, develop evidence. Do we want them writing poetry too? Maybe is any college professor going to expect them to do that unless they're a English writing major? Absolutely not. So to what extent do we cave to our culture as it stands? And to what extent should we not? I mean, I think this is an ongoing conversation. I could bring up John Locke again. One of his major goals in his, you know, expression of having students be able to tell stories is also he goes in in his some thoughts concerning education right after that to how they should be trained in letter writing because an English gentleman is going to conduct a whole lot of his business in letter writing. And he's also going to converse with friends and family and acquaintances in long form, high quality letter writing. So that's what he should be trained in because he's going to do that. Which of course throws in the question of to what extent are we pragmatic in our education or, or utilitarian? Well, I don't think that's utilitarian, but it certainly is practical. 
I was in a meeting with our uh, composition teachers the other day and I made the joke about, you know, are we just training our students to be able to write really good emails? Is that the point of it all in 2021? Uh, yeah, we have to consider and balance both the pragmatic values and uh, a richer vision, I think, as a, as a classical educators for what truly elegant and beautiful prose and writing looks like. Um, let me let me move us on in our conversation here. You know, we're exploring the the history of narration, why it matters. You've touched on uh, narration in the classical world for us. It's classical roots. You've mentioned John Locke a little bit. Could we go back a century? Could you tell us a little bit about the uh, humanist Erasmus and where you saw uh, narration in his writings? Yeah, that'd be great. And I think one of the important questions here too is. Did Charlotte Mason innovate in jumping us over to the memory of content as the main goal? Or, or was that someone else? And uh, what, what I think is actually the case is that Renaissance educators like Erasmus and then John Amos Comenius after him switched the focus or shifted the focus of narration from rich texts that students would narrate to primarily a teacher's lecture or explanation of something. And as they did that, they also made the main goal a focus upon content or knowledge rather than style. I think you can see this pretty clearly in Erasmus, for instance, who is all about the classical education, reading of texts in Latin and Greek as the main thing that students are doing all day, every day, with um, a master teacher who has read incredibly widely in all the classical authors that summed up all that was known at their time. And instead of having students narrate from those great texts, though, Erasmus recommends that teachers give lectures that introduce and explain and give background for those texts, and that students be required to reproduce those lectures, the content of those lectures, in their own way. The substance of them, he says, is the focus. And I, see, I think this is an, an altogether kind of new shift um, in the whole picture of what Erasmus is recommending in his work on education. He is expecting them to do a lot of what Quintilian did. He's actually reading Quintilian, quoting from Quintilian, saying at times, hey, just do what Quintilian said. So we know the, I, I think, a very clear line here from Quintilian to Erasmus, but Erasmus has taken the narrating technique and attach that to students narrating content of the teacher's lecture so that they would know it. And that's his primary concern, that they know the background that they need to, that they have the expertise and content awareness that the teacher gives them so that then they can go back into their reading of these great books in Latin, of course, or Greek, and read them with that knowledge and awareness so that they can understand them better. And then he does have them doing um, rhetorical training type exercises where they're actually doing imitative 
work on these great texts in Latin, but mostly it's the higher level exercises that Quintilian recommends where they're translating them between languages. So they're doing some translation work, putting Latin into Greek or vice versa and so on. So he's, he's got them doing those rhetorical training techniques, but when you're talking about narration for Erasmus, it's a focus on the ability to take in and then through reproducing the content, know it. And, um, and, I, and I believe he, he has in mind students doing written narrations primarily because he says that it's going to be time and trouble to the teacher, I know, but it is essential. So there's a sense that the teacher is going to be in some way giving feedback, reading, engaging with students, written narrations of his own lecture as part of the learning process. So that's the kind of big renaissance shift that goes on, moving from a focus on rhetorical style training to the goal of content and also moving from, you know, narrating texts to narrating a teacher's explanation. And then we have that same practice followed in John Amos Comenius, who was, um, you know, a Czech educational philosopher, became incredibly um, renowned in his day worked a lot towards the development of what we would call modern schooling. But his, one of his main ideas that he talks about in The Great Didactic, his kind of big magnum opus on education, is um, the idea that the, the teacher, teachers would teach less, but learners would learn more. That's sort of his golden key. There would be less kind of hurry and hustle and bustle and more real leisure in the classroom or in the school. So that's kind of one of Comenius's guiding ideas. And in um, one of his later books, The Analytical Didactic, where he kind of translates some of his earlier ideas uh, from The Great Didactic, where he's thinking of education according to nature, he translates that into education according to like the logic of things or the reasoning of things. And in his analytical didactic is where he actually endorses narration. And he talks about it in terms of the student becoming the teacher in the classroom. After the teacher has fully explained or demonstrated something, some truth, the student would then become the teacher and do the same, right? Explain it himself to all the other students, I think is implied. So here I see Comenius as recommending an oral narration, again, of a teacher's lecture or explanation of some truth. And you can see then the focus is on the substance, the matter taught, this teacher can, sorry, the student or pupil can do it in his own way. It's not about the style of what the teacher said, it's about the content primarily. And so that's kind of the rebirth of narration in the Renaissance, where it gets shifted from primarily text-focused to, you know, teacher's lecture-focused, which I think I find very interesting. It seems there may be a technological backdrop to that with the coming out of the Middle Ages. Even around the advent of Gutenberg's press, books were still rare and expensive, seems that the role of the teacher's lecture remains rather important to disseminate the knowledge of these texts. So it was the lecturer who would access the text and then be the 
conduit to disseminate the knowledge, the background, and, and to train people in how to translate those texts because they were often not in English or, or Dutch or German or whatever the language was that was being taught. In. So it's fascinating to, to consider why narration would have taken on that particular cue during that time frame and why now when we can access so much information digitally or in print form in our language, in our native language, that we would see Charlotte Mason pivoting to a return to direct access to the text as central and the lecture being less important. Yeah, and I almost wonder if in the classical era in general, like you said, because, I mean, back then, getting your own copy of a text was an incredibly great investment. And so it would have made sense potentially for students to complete a written narration of a text given from a, a teacher and that to be become the student's own version of that text as best they had it going forward. And, you know, of course, maybe they were doing it with tablet and stylus, but perhaps they also took the opportunity to you know, invest in doing it on scrap paper that they had so that they could keep that for themselves. I did look into this and, you know, it was early in Erasmus's lifetime that we have Gutenberg's press. And so I, I happen to wonder if perhaps the part of the reason for Erasmus switching it to students narrating from a lecture is because he envisions the students who are with this sort of master teacher going into a life of scholarship. And so they would have had to acquire the text themselves potentially and been more able to, even if it was uh, still costly, as you point out, Patrick, but therefore why would they narrate from them? Right. Right. right? Why would they, narrate the text and not do some other more challenging exercise. I think he also is just envisioning older students primarily, whereas Quintilian starts his, his talk with the youngest students and the, the development of narration is that kind of first step in a rhetorical training process of exercises. And so that that would potentially explain some of the, the shift. Now, what gets really interesting is then knowing these two moves, what Charlotte Mason is doing. And by her day, we really are at the moment of a, a reading public. It's actually England and Britain in the Victorian era where because of industrialization, books are now becoming so cheap and readily available that they can be used in education like never before in schools. Even as now we're expanding education to more and more students, the poor are for the first time being invited in. And that's one of Charlotte Mason's big ideas is a liberal education for all, that we could actually give the, the tradition of liberal education with high quality books, what we would call great books for these, these students. And so she then recommends a primarily book-based education. Focus not on the teacher's lecture, because after all, we can't expect all of our governesses and teachers of young children to be masterminds who can give that sort of inspiring, informed, 
lecture that just, you know, seizes students' hearts and fills them with knowledge and wisdom like Erasmus could envision in an earlier era. Charlotte Mason is very realistic and says, this is what normally happens when teachers give oral lessons. They maybe read a few sources, work up some of the facts and give a little reading made easy style of talking through content. And she just thinks that's dull and boring day in and day out to students. Whereas if you put a high quality rich text in front of them, that's challenging and has more of the, the life to it. Of course, she, she's against dry as dust textbooks too, <laughs> as she calls them in her third volume. But that's the, the kind of big shift that Charlotte Mason makes is to take the focus on a rich text from the classical era, but the main goal of learning content, of getting knowledge of content from the Renaissance era and bring that down and fuse those two together into her kind of main way of using narration. Like I've said, part of the reason for that is the, the ready availability of books in her day, that we, we could get them. And you, you see them even sharing books in some of the public school movement that begins to follow her, her methods near the end of her life, what, what is called the liberal education for all movement. They've got classrooms of 30 or so still, and there's one book for every two students because they can't afford to get a book for every student but they're still narrating or they'll, or they'll have groups where they'll do narrating and written narrations in those schools. So I find that all really interesting. Like you said, how technological developments, you know, may have played a role here in the kind of new innovative moves in using narration as a teaching practice. I think that also points forward maybe in some ways to how our technological developments might um, indicate some ways forward for narration. Well, this has just been a delight, Jason. Uh, I'm so grateful for you and your research into the history of narration and in particular, your, your latest installment, um, just with those bullet points at the end with some ways forward for Charlotte Mason practitioners and Christian classical educators. I just found fascinating and I look forward to continuing to see what you produce on this topic, especially with regards to some of the technology available and the media available. Uh, to us today, while also at the same time, as you point out, keeping rich texts central and, and into our, our pedagogy. Uh, well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. Take a moment, if you enjoyed this podcast, to give us a rating and write a review. And we look forward to having you join us next time.